Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365 day returns. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long forgotten murders, all set within London's West End. Today's episode is about Emily Bell BK, a sweet natured lady who eloped with a lovable Irish rogue called Pat. Only Pat wasn't what he seemed, and with Emily missing, very little evidence. And her body destroyed. Although her death looked accidental, the police now had to prove that this was a murder. Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock, and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 75 The Fatal Fling of Emily Bell Bicay, Part 2 The Liar. Today, I'm standing in Waterloo train station, just off the south bank of the River Thames. Three bridges southwest of the hanging of Roberto Calvi, two streets west of the brutal attack on David Morley, and one street south of the revenge attack on Sir Michael Francis O'Dwyer, coming soon to Murder Mile. Built in 1848, London Waterloo is the UK's busiest train station, serving over 100 million customers a year from the south of England and terminating at the West End. With a Baroque Portland stone entrance, stained glass windows, ornate friezes, and its infamous four-faced clock, Waterloo's 700-foot concourse is naturally illuminated by an expansive glass roof and cast-iron arches. Sadly, most of its stunning architecture is lost amidst a nauseating sea of colourful adverts. For caffeine-rich cowtit drinks, a splat of mashed pig corpses in a ketchup bun, macerated baby chickens moulded into fun-sized fat-coated nuggets. The latest bum-numbing series you simply must see or your life isn't worth living, which apparently gets good around series three, and ironically, adverts for health insurance. Waterloo Station, 
is like a little shopping complex. But back in its heyday, it was pretty much the same. A train station full of tea shops, florists, newsstands, and even a cinema. And yet, as many punters watched the latest newsreels, cartoons and thrillers, barely a few feet away, in the left luggage kiosk on the south side of Waterloo Station, a bloody murder mystery was unfolding. As it was here, on Friday the 2nd of May 1924, 17 days after her disappearance, that the murderer of Emily Bell Bicay would be caught. All the police had to do now was to prove it. By the morning of Friday the 2nd of May, the police knew that the brown Gladstone bag belonged to Jesse's adulterous husband, Pat, the torn clothes to his mistress, Emily, the cook's knife tested positive for blood, and the yellowy-brown fat proved to be human. And although they suspected that something more sinister had happened, Chief Inspector Guy Savage had only circumstantial evidence of an illicit affair or a botched abortion but nothing more. But having stashed the Gladstone bag in the left luggage kiosk at Waterloo Station and kept the ticket, believing that he might return to collect it, the police placed the bag back on the shelf, instructed his long-suffering wife Jessie to return the ticket to the pocket of his brown crumpled suit where she had first found it, and with CID officers lying in wait, a trap had been set to catch a killer. But who was Pat, and why would he kill the woman he loved? Patrick Mahon was born on the 23rd of September 1889 on Helena Street in West Derby, Liverpool, the fourth of six children to Henry, a wholesale draper, and Amy, a housewife. With all of his siblings entering honest professions, one was a veterinary surgeon, one was a teacher, and one was a priest. Raised in a middle-class household, in an affluent suburb, in a prosperous, booming city, with the Mahon family being big believers in hard work, decency, and the teachings of the good book, as dedicated churchgoers, they were widely regarded as respectable, moral, and honest. Just like Emily, Pat had a good upbringing, and was given everything he would need to become a fine, upstanding man. But unlike Emily, his life wasn't beset by tragedy, struggle or grief. Educated at St Mary's Church of England school, although he was good at sports, active in the church, and would later become a Sunday school teacher, being described as bright but easily distracted, Pat grappled with his religious beliefs. As if sins were so bad, why did breaking them feel so good? On the surface, Pat seemed like a handsome charmer. But being easily tempted by the devilish lure of goods, girls and gambling, and excited by the thrill of defying God, seeing these sins not as life lessons, but as goals to getting whatever he desired, Pat had learned to lie, cheat and steal. After a few weeks as a shop assistant for H. Young & Sons, 
Pat was dismissed, having been suspected of theft. His next job, as a clerk for a chocolatier's called Barker and Dobson, lasted a few months. But having developed an insatiable addiction to betting on horse races, it was no coincidence that after he left, the company's finances were no longer a little bit light. Here, he also stole the heart of a 23-year-old typist called Jessie. A good Catholic girl with a solid work ethic and a romantic soul, but with Pat being incapable of ever telling the truth, while still living under the roofs of their respective parents, at Pat's request, they married in secret. And as his addiction got worse, so did the deceit. On the 24th of January 1911, after a few months working as a clerk for W.G. Taylor's, an African art importer, Pat was arrested for forging cheques worth £123, almost £6,000 today, all under the aliases he used to cover up his crimes, including Herbert Mahon, Pat Waller and Pat Derrick Pattinson. Too cowardly to face the police, Pat fled, left Jesse to pick up the pieces and with Mr Taylor unwilling to prosecute Pat out of respect for his family, Pat's father paid the balance of the missing monies, and after one month on the run, Patrick Mahon was bound over for one year at Liverpool City Police Court. As a convicted criminal, Pat's dirty little secret was hushed up by his family, and having discovered that he was secretly married, his mother insisted they remarry. But the sanctity of marriage meant nothing to Pat, as all the while he posed as a single man, using his ill-gotten gains to woo his other women. His parents and his long-suffering wife had put up with so much. They had given him so many chances. But that year, unable to see beyond his greed, Patrick Mahon took one step closer to becoming a killer. On the night of Saturday the 8th of April 1916, seeing theft as easier than earning an honest wage, Pat broke into the unlit home of Herman Lang, manager of the London and Provincial Bank in Chertsey. Dressed in black and clutching a hammer he had wrapped in cloth to deaden the sound, Pat shimmied up a drainpipe, cracked a hole in the first floor window, lifted a latch and crept in. His plan was perfect. Except, having startled the sleeping housemaid, as she screamed and turned to flee, Pat panicked, hit her several times over the head with the hammer, rendering her unconscious and profusely bleeding. Only Pat didn't run. Instead, he waited. As with no signs of the police, the house secluded, the maid still alive, and his greed overpowering any rational thought, when she came to, he demanded she hand him the keys to the bank. But when he returned later the next day, with the police lying in wait, Pat was arrested. On the 27th of June 1916, Patrick Mahon was sentenced to five years hard labour for burglary and the assault on Olive Whitkins. And although his actions had severe ramifications for others, 
he showed no regrets for his victim, his family, his baby daughter or his wife. Upon his conviction, his siblings disowned him, his mother sank into depression, and his father, it is said, died of shame. After four years in prison, Pat moved to number two Pagoda Avenue in Kew to live with the only person who stuck by him, his long-suffering wife, Jessie. Struggling to find work, to help her out, Jessie's employer, Consoles Automatic Aerators Limited, hired Pat as a sales manager to oversee the company's liquidation under Robertson Hill & Co. And it is there in July 1923, that he would meet Emily Belby Kay. From the first day they met, to her very last day alive, Pat lied to Emily. Lured by his chiseled good looks, dazzled by his roguish charm, and amused by his cheeky banter, the smitten spinster knew him not as Pat Mahon, but as Patrick Derrick Pattinson, a pseudonym he used to sign false checks, to hide his flandering ways, and to mask his criminal convictions. By September, after a delightful day by the river, their first intimacy took place. It meant everything to Emily, as the respectable lady gave up her body to the man she loved. But to a serial womanizer like Pat, she was just another notch on the bedpost. And as the desperately lovesick lady droned on and on about marriage, to keep her sweet, he told her his divorce was imminent. But in truth, it wasn't. By Christmas, with Emily no longer employed at Robertson Hill & Co, they saw each other less and less. Which was fine by Pat, as growing ever needy, Emily's talk of romance had become tiresome. Besides, he had been married before, and it was all a bit of a bore. Babies did nothing but wither his wild oats. And why would he divorce his wife, when Jesse was the one he always ran to when everything went wrong? It was fun while it lasted, but the affair was over. Pat didn't love Emily but he did love her money. Blinded by his charm, the level-headed lady was strung along by the well-rehearsed spiel of a cash-strapped Lothario. As the convicted fraudster coerced the usually frugal Emily to sell £400 worth of her shares under the ruse that they would start a new life together in South Africa via Paris. On the 27th of March, 1924, as a weakened Emily recuperated from a suspected flu, her alleged lover trotted out the tried and tested ploy of chilled champagne, twinkling stars and a sparkly ring. And having got down on bended knee, Pat proposed and Emily's dream came true. But to Pat, a ring was just a ring, a pretty thing to pop on a finger. So having kept the receipt, he knew he would lose nothing. Only Emily wasn't easily duped, as being a self-sufficient woman whose calmness had guided her through years of family tragedy, with Pat still not divorced and still without a passport, now more than ever, being two months pregnant 
and rightfully suspicious that he was cheating on her with another woman, she needed to test his commitment by making them live as husband and wife. At her request, Pat rented a romantic little cottage called the Officer's House in Pevensey Bay. It was perfect. For Emily, it meant long coastal walks and quiet nights by the fire. But for Pat, who viewed it under an alias, paid in cash, and rented it for six weeks longer than he needed, having lied to the owners that his wife needed a quiet place to write, it was isolated, remote, and private. And having told her lover about the impending birth of their baby, with that, her fate was sealed. On Saturday the 12th of April at 1pm, as Emily checked out of the Kenilworth Court Hotel, dragging behind her a large trunk, which would soon contain the hacked-up bits of her dismembered corpse, a salesman at the Staines Kitchen Equipment Company made an entry in his logbook for a 10-inch cook's knife and a small meat saw. The buyer was Pat Mahon, and it was dated three days before her death. On the 13th, they walked arm-in-arm arm on the Shingle Beach. On the 14th, Emily posted a letter to Fizz. And on the 15th, she waved to a passing butcher. After that, she was never seen alive again. The night of Tuesday the 15th of April was nasty, as a violent storm ripped through the heart of Pevensey Bay. In the bungalow, sat alone by a flickering firelight, Emily ate the roast dinner, as once again, opposite hers, Pat's plate remained untouched. His commitment to their relationship was as tested as her patience, as of the three days they had lived together, Pat had been gone for two. In a statement, Pat later claimed, she fumed and raved, Suddenly, in a fit of anger, she picked up a coal axe. Only we know that's not true, as being described as one of the nicest girls you could ever hope to meet, who was placid, sweet-natured and unflappable, Emily was never violent. She threw it at me. It glanced off my shoulder. But when Pat was examined by a doctor, he had no cuts or bruises to any part of his body. It hit the bedroom door, breaking the shaft. And although the police found a small hand axe with its handle split, tests confirmed it had been splintered by repetitive hard strikes, not a single blow. And on none of the doors was there an axe wound. I felt appalled at the fury she'd shown me and realised how strong she was. Given her physical fitness, his lack of injuries, and being a woman who could handle herself, the police believed she didn't die in a fight, as he had suggested, but in a cowardly, brutal attack from behind. We struggled, fell over an easy chair, and her head came into violent contact with a round coal cauldron. And although a leg on the cast-iron cauldron was bent, the housekeeper confirmed that this had happened one year prior. She lay stunned or dead. The next few seconds, I, I can't remember... 
except as a nightmare of horror, as I saw blood begin to issue from Miss Kay's head. I did my utmost to revive her. Only he didn't. Pat's statement was a tissue of lies. And yet the evidence told a different story. Having earlier stocked the cauldron full of coal and spent a short while chopping logs, Pat hid the axe in the bedroom. Seeing the notorious womanizer stumble home late, Emily calmly put an end to the relationship and dressed in slippers, bloomers and a silk nightdress, she walked out of the bedroom to sleep somewhere else. For Pat, who wanted out of the relationship, she had handed it to him on a plate. It was fun while it lasted, but the affair was over. Besides, Pat didn't love Emily, but he did love her money. And with the bungalow secluded, the axe in his fist, and Emily's back turned, as his greed overpowered any rational thought, just as he had with the banker's housemaid, Olive Wickens, seeing her not as a human being, but as an obstacle to his money. With a single fast blow, Pat buried the axe in Emily's head. Caught off guard, as an intense pain shot into her brain, Emily staggered into the sitting room, dazed and blinded, her last steps marked by a bloody trickle. Only being physically strong, she didn't fall. So having learned from his attack on Olive, who had survived having been repeatedly beaten over the head with a hammer, Pat wasn't going to make the same mistake with Emily. And having bludgeoned her skull so the bone caved in and the axe broke, Pat strangled Emily until her legs stopped twitching. When questioned by the police, Pat perfectly played the part of a grieving lover, whose fiancée had died in a tragic accident. Only his tears weren't real, and his delay in her dismemberment had nothing to do with grief. Five days prior, on Thursday the 10th of April, Whilst waiting at Richmond train station, 32-year-old Ethel Primrose Duncan met a handsome Irish rogue who, although he had a wife at home and a pregnant mistress in a hotel, he claimed to be an unhappily married and impending divorcee called Pat Waller. On Tuesday the 15th of April, as Emily cooked a romantic roast dinner for two, Pat dined with Ethel. Returning late to their love nest, with perfume on his suit, lipstick on his cheek, and cheap whiskey on his breath, for Emily, this was the last straw. And yet, before she was even dead, Pat had already invited his new mistress to spend the following weekend with him in the secluded cottage in Pevensey Bay. All he needed was Emily out of the way. On Thursday the 17th of April, Pat sent Ethel a telegram and a £4 money order to get a train ticket to Eastbourne. Anticipating a sexy weekend, to set a more romantic mood, 
he scrubbed the bloodied carpet, shoved Emily's stuff in a box, and as she was too big to dump in the trunk, he decapitated her cold corpse. As his butcher's meat saw ripped through skin, muscle and bone, severing her spine and splitting her body into two arms, two legs, a torso and a head. Ethel stayed at the bungalow from Friday to Sunday, sleeping in a dead woman's bed, spending a dead woman's money, shagging a dead woman's killer, and all just a few feet from the mangled stinking mess of his mistress's rotting flesh. Thankfully, Ethel had a really bad cold, so she smelt nothing. With the weekend's fun done, over the next ten days, Pat disposed of the body of Emily Bell BK. As a broad girl, even with her limbs sawn in half and her torso split into quarters, her bits were still too big to bin. So in the scullery's bath, using the 10-inch cook's knife, Pat sliced off her sagging muscles, the jagged blade tearing at her rancid meat as a thick gloop of congealed blood, cartilage and sinew splashed up the cast-iron bath and clogged the choking drainpipe. On the stove, three two-gallon saucepans boiled hour after hour, as in a red bubbling liquid with a yellowy-brown curd on top, severed arms and hands were boiled down to bones, as the air hung with an unholy mix of old stew, hot fat and singed hair. On the fires, he burnt her feet, neck, bits of spine, the thigh bone also. It's surprising what a fire will destroy. And although, at some point, he must have loved her. I burned her head in the fire. It was finished in about three hours. As he sat and watched his mistress's face char and blacken, until nothing was left but a skull. I poked it. The fire poker went right through her head. And to sum up how little his lover meant to him, the next day, I smashed up the skull and put the pieces in the bin. By the 28th of April, almost two weeks after the murder, Pat still struggled to fully dispose of Emily's body. In the trunk were two slabs of pelvis and her right upper chest. In her hat box were 20 wrapped slivers of boiled flesh and in a Huntley and Palmer's biscuit tin were her lungs, heart, bowels, liver and intestines, all yet to be boiled, burned or binned. And with the bungalow sticky with blood, crawling with flies, and oozing with hot pots of human fat, with close to a thousand bone fragments in the fire's ash pan, it was an absolute mess. But being due back at work, Pat had to go home. Planning to return, Pat packed his brown Gladstone bag. He wrapped the cook's knife in the bloomers. Twenty more slivers of boiled flesh parceled up in the nightdress and stashed inside the tennis satchel to disguise the smell. I tossed them out of the train between Eastbourne and Waterloo. That same day, at the left luggage kiosk in Waterloo Station, having handed in his bag, Pat was given ticket number J2415 which he placed inside the pocket of his crumpled brown suit.
And that night, at home, as he kissed his wife and child, Pat grinned with delight, as once again he had defied God. Only with the trap having been set, this would be the last sin of Patrick Mahon. On Friday the 2nd of May 1924, at 8.40pm, Pat collected the brown Gladstone bag and was apprehended by PC Mark Thompson. But he wasn't arrested, as at that point, the police didn't know if a crime had even been committed. All they had was the bag. Interviewed at Kensington Police Station, Pat remained cool, claiming it was meat for his dogs. But Chief Inspector Guy Savage refused to accept his lies. As after an hour of cunning silence, Pat broke and said, I suppose you know everything. I'll tell you the truth. And although his statement was a tissue of lies, the evidence inside the bungalow spoke volumes. According to the Home Office pathologist Sir Bernard Spilsbury, the body was destroyed beyond all recognition. But having trawled through saucepans of bloody gloop, bins of sliced up bits, and even the clogged drain pipe of the bath, he matched the victim's blood group, hair colour, height, weight, sex, age, and month of her pregnancy to the missing woman, having painstakingly recreated her skull from hundreds of bits of bone in the ashes fire. And so even without a body, the police could not only prove that this wasn't an accident, but that this was a murder. On the 8th of July 1924, Patrick Mahon pleaded not guilty and stuck to the story that Emily's death was a tragic accident, having hit her head on the coal scuttle. But faced with overwhelming evidence, and the jury appalled, not just by his callous acts, but also by the affair he had engaged in with Ethel Duncan between the day of the death and the dismemberment. Having been found guilty of the murder of Emily Bell Bicay, on Wednesday the 3rd of September 1924, Patrick Mahon was executed at Wandsworth Prison. The liar, cheat, thief and womanizer had almost got away with the perfect murder. Almost. Had it not been for his bag, a ticket and the suspicions of his wife. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. That was the concluding part of the fatal fling of Emily Bell Bicay. And for all of Mickey's bona fide Belgian bun munching pals, there's more sweet treats after the break. But before that, here's my recommended podcast of the week. Hey guys, my name is Tara. And my name is Jessica. And together we co-host the podcast, Three Spooked Girls. If you love the paranormal. Or murder. Join us every Monday as we tell our listeners about a new spooky tale or true crime case. We'll have a special drink recipe each episode picked out by me for you to enjoy while we scare the hell out of you. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever the hell else you listen to podcasts. Come hang out with us and get your spooky on.
A huge thank you goes out to my new Patreon supporters, who are Vivia Bo, Georgia Harris, and Diane Lowe. I thank you. With an extra thank you to those patrons who have increased their pledge to get extra goodies, like early ad-free episodes, and even a Murder Mile mug. Ooh. Plus special thank yous to Tom and Nicola Rainsy Hughes for their lovely card and wedding seeds, which I have planted in my Murder Mile plant pot, and a thank you to Emma Thorpe, who I met at the Generation Y They Walk Among Us meetup, for sending me the very lovely email. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. How long was that? That's not too bad, that one. Yeah, that'll be all right. Uh, I'd have a stretch. Hello, Murky Milers. How you doing? How you are you doing? How you doing? <laughs> uh, how are we all? We all good? I just got to check the time. Uh, that's fine. How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? Yeah, I, th- I think I was doing a bit of Joe Tribbiani there. Then it m- morphed into something else. I don't know what that was. Anyway, uh, welcome everyone. Extra mile. The extra bit after the episode you've just listened to. So that was the hard bit. That was the bit that's really difficult for me to do and takes between 60 to 100 hours a week and this is the easy bit where I just waffle a bit and you know god if only this oh if only this 
Myrna Miles are as easy as doing extra mile. Look, it's not even scripted. It's just waffle. It's just me waffling. I'm this mouth is open. It's just things are coming out, and it's like, and this won't even get edited out. This is all just staying in. Oh, if only it was all as easy as that. The first bit is going to take me a bloody long time. It's going to be. Uh, that's going to be about yeah, about three days to edit that. Three whole days. Oh. But it'll be worth it. It'll be good. It'll be good. Uh, I hope you like the first bit. That was last week. I hope you like this bit. I'm not going to put them together as a kind of a, a, a as I do with the big multi-part series, I'm not going to bolt them together as a kind of a, an omnibus edition because it's only a two-parter. There's no point. Uh, I only do that with the big, the big multi-parters when it's, you know, if it's over like more than a month or something like that, I think sometimes you need to it's nice to have a refresher. So I won't be doing that with this episode because they're a bit close together. Ah, so um, that was that. That was a two-parter. That was the uh, Emily Bailby K story. Hope you enjoyed that. Next week, we've got one more Murder Mile episode and then we go into uh, six mini miles and then we go into the final the final run before Christmas. You can tell it's getting to Christmas because it's getting bloody cold now getting really bloody cold uh really foggy outside this morning i've got my two sheets on on my bed my duvet and then a, the a kind of furry one on top and even i woke up this morning and thought oh it's a bit nippy it's not nippy enough for me to put the fire on though i'm i'm one of these people i've got my logs i've got all my logs there and i'm picking up my my third of a ton of coal next week and uh i'm collecting my newspapers and my kindling and doing all that but i'm one of these people who i like to wait I wait. There's people now. It's like I've seen people even on the hottest day of the year. I saw people on their boats with their fires on. Why? Why have you done that? Why have you got your fires on? It's it was like 34 degrees and people had their fires on. It's like are you idiots? So already because it's gone a little bit cold. It's not cold. It's still it's still like 17 degrees or whatever. People are still got their fires on it's like why you won't appreciate it later on so what i do is i wait i wait until like we're way into december until it really 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 starts to get cold and then i go right i wait for the day my fire's ready it's been i've had it i cleaned it out at the end of the last season then i i stocked it all up so it's ready and it's sitting there but it won't go on until december and uh, then i can really appreciate it or as i normally do i'll switch it on and then go oh it's too hot and then i have to open the doors because uh, i like the cold I do like the cold uh so um where was i what was i doing so uh i'm heading south i'm heading back into town which is all nice which is good it means i don't have to get the train in from town to go in to do the walks i can kind of start cycling in now because it's it's only about 15 miles so that's good uh just had a nice weekend away congratulations to barbie and joe went to their wedding uh very kind of them to invite me uh uh, had a really lovely time. Lots of boozing, lots of good food, lots of lots of boogieing, uh, some good tunes. All had a lovely time. So uh, it was good giggle. Uh, lots of lots of bullshit spoken by Uncle Roy. <laughs> say, uh, say no more. <laughs> oh, what a character! Um, uh, and while I was there, this was a, a wedding in Rye, on the south coast, uh, or near the south coast. Uh, I, I was gonna record a meander mile there and i'd i'd scripted it and done all that and i turned i got my microphone but when i got there i thought hmm let's not what i've decided to do with the meander miles because the first because i've done what did i do i did Covent garden i've done old compton street i've decided to keep them local so it'll all be places that you're aware of so uh i'm probably going to do one in chinatown uh 
I'm probably going to do one in Piccadilly Circus. Do you know? So, it, so at least it's places that you're familiar with that we've been to before. We can uh, reference old stories that we've been to, but hopefully there'll be some lots of new stuff as well. So that so uh, that's what's going to happen with Meander Mile. Um, uh, exciting news at the moment even though i f- sound quite up and chipper it's weird that i'm up and chipper and uh full of beans and energy because right went to the wedding this weekend i've got my suit i have a suit well i, I have i have a funeral suit and then i have a non-funeral suit that's really all i've got funeral suits there uh non-funeral suit uh my brown one i was uh brown suit a brown suit it's a nice suit i like it uh uh i walked to my brother's wedding about when was that about five years ago it's far it was, you know the suit was good it fitted nicely it was not too tight so immediately afterwards i dry cleaned it put it back in the cupboard because uh, we were coming up to barbie and joe's wedding i pulled it out i was like oh it's still dry cleaned i was like fantastic i forgot that i dry cleaned it great so it's done uh, so I took out the shirt, tried on the shirt, shoot, shirt still fitted. I was like, great, that's perfect. Uh, problem was, uh, went to the wedding, did the night before. We all had a good film. We all got very, very, very drunk, very, very drunk. We won't really talk about that anymore. Uh, got very drunk. I didn't get as drunk as everyone else. I was, I was on best behaviour. Uh, but the next day, getting ready for the wedding, about an hour before the wedding, I thought, well, I'll put my suit on and then we'll, you know, just at a shower, we'll go out and uh, uh, go to um, go to the town hall, uh, popped on my shirt. That was all fine. Went to pop on the trousers, couldn't do them up, couldn't close the buckle of the trousers. So I was like, right, shit, well, I've got, luckily I've got a belt with me. So I put the belt on and I'll safety pin myself in to the trousers so at least they you know uh, at least they, they won't pop open but i was kind of all night i was kind of double checking myself because, because the zip wouldn't go all the way up i kind of had to safety pin that in as well so i had to be really careful uh and then i thought right that's fine then i went to put on the jacket uh and it was like that scene in raids of the lost ark when indiana jones you know he's he's, he's inside the nazi uh submarine base and he he beats up a nazi to steal his uniform and then he goes to put on the um the nazi's uniform and he realizes the nazi is about you know about five foot about a foot shorter than he is and it doesn't fit and you know when he's he's trying to put it over the shirt over his chest and it's like about two inches too short that was me with my jacket i couldn't put the jacket on so all uh all of the cake that i've been eating all the chocolate all the biscuits yeah i've bulked up i've bulked up i've got fat so uh, i'm on a strict no junky foodie diet at the moment uh even though i don't eat a lot of junk food i do like my cake as you know do like cake do like biscuits and you know if you add it all up i probably get through like a big cake every day and probably a you know i could easily get through a whole pack of things that's the problem so uh yeah until christmas no cakes no chocolates no biscuits um not even gonna have diet coke because it's it's not good for you and it gives it i've i've got i've i've had a couple of days off that so the aspartum and headaches have gone thank god uh if you're there now and you go and i don't get headaches from diet coke try going off it for a while <laughs> if you have it once in a blue moon it's not a problem but if you have it repeatedly and, and you've never gone off it try going off it for a couple of days and then you'll realize it's it's bad stuff it really is um i even i even tried moving on to fanta or seven up but then then i found out fanta and seven up is basically coke just with different coloring really so it's got the same shit in it so yeah on a completely different diet which means 
I'm going to go and make a cup of tea, but uh, it's not, it won't be a cup of tea as we, as we normally know it, uh, because, because I'm trying to cut down on all the uh, water that goes in, not all the water, water's fine, what am I talking about? I'm trying to cut down all the sugar that goes in it and things like that. Um, I won't be having my usual tea today, uh, I'm onto my green teas. Yeah, because otherwise, because like I have like five, five, six, maybe sometimes ten cups of tea a day, and if, if you think about it, I have two spoons of sugar in there. That adds up to uh, well, between ten to twenty spoons of sugar a day, which is a lot. It all adds up. So uh, yeah, trying to do that, and obviously it's got milk in it as well, powdered milk. But there we go. Right, so I want a strict one. It's going well so far. I'm feeling good. What's today? Today is what's today? Wednesday. So this will be day three. It's fine. I, I did this before. I, I had a couple of months of uh, not uh, eating crap, and uh, I felt really good. You do feel really good when you're not on a um, a diet. When you when you're on a diet, when you eat, I realise that when you're eating crap, um, you just feel sluggish and awful. Your body can't kind of process stuff, and you just feel bad. But when you, you know, in the evenings, I have you know. Um, uh, fish, rice, vegetables, that's pretty much it. And do you know what? You feel good afterwards. And I only pooing once a day. Only pooing once a day. Yeah, you need to know that, didn't you? Right, so uh, so let's add in some bits about this story that I may have not told you last time. Really annoyingly, I, I when I was writing episode one and then I moved info across to episode two, I moved info I was going to use for the next episode onto page two and then I deleted some of it that was on page one which is the interesting stuff that I didn't tell you last week which I'll never be able to tell you again because I've just deleted it which is really annoying so uh, there was a scene that I removed a small scene that I removed earlier in this episode uh, just because I felt it kind of threw us off uh, but what it was was that uh, aged 18 when Pat uh, was still living at home with his parents his parents came in and found him in his bedroom. He was unconscious, having been inhaling chloroform. Um, they were uh, He was taken to hospital. Uh, he recovered. Uh, they were unsure at that point whether this was a suicide attempt, attempt which was odd because he, they said he hadn't been depressed at all, uh, or whether he'd been experimenting with drugs or... Because, oops, because he was constantly trying to push the boundaries of kind of God's sins, you know, theft and adultery and uh, eventually it would be murder, whether this was another one that he was trying to push. So still to this day, no one knows why he was inhaling chloroform and uh, took himself so close to death. But that was in there. Uh, I ended up took it, taking it out of the script in the end because I just didn't. It kind of threw things off, but I think it's interesting. I think it says a lot about his... Uh, his mental instability. I originally put it in there because the family helped cover it up. They were like, oh, do you know, because it's a bit of a... 1920s, you know, suicide, not only was it illegal, but you know, regarded highly as a a sin and quite uh, shameful. So his family, that was the, one of the first uh, moments when they covered up what he'd been doing. Uh, obviously, later on, it was with his, uh, his further crimes. Um... Obviously, so I, I, I've told you this story. I've told you the two versions of the story. I told you Emily's story. This is pretty much his story. So it's kind of more balanced his way and kind of I've told it mostly from his perspective. So it can be a bit derogatory against Emily on there. Uh, but 
Uh, as you know, they kind of met up together. She had money. He didn't have money. Uh, she was quite um, frugal with her money. She'd got uh, her, her inheritance, which she'd invested. Uh, she invested, she had uh, 30 Mayu Brewery shares, and she also invested in Dunlop as well. So uh, two good companies. Um, so, uh, so I'm listening out for the kettle for my green tea. Ooh. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, I'm saying er uh, a lot, uh, 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 so, uh, on the 16th of February, 1924, so this is obviously after he was like, the relationship's over, it's a bit shit, but I do kind of like her money, so that's what, when he's stuck with her, uh, tease out. Yeah, which one's this, is this lemon green tea? Lemon green tea. There we go. Tea's up. No biscuit. I have got an apple next to me, but there's no biscuit. Uh, so, yeah, uh, 16th of February 1924, Emily wrote a, a cheque for £404, which is roughly uh, her shares. She had 600 shares, uh, which was about £35,000 today, roughly. So that would be about £20,000, if my maths is right. Uh, Emily wrote a cheque for... Uh, uh, £404,000 from the Midland Bank in Coleman Street. Uh, the bank gave her four £100 notes, obviously with four extra pound notes as well. Uh, three returned to the bank and one is still in circulation. Uh, the three cash of the three cash notes, because obviously a hundred pound notes. I mean, today I've, I've never seen a hundred pound note, but then that would have been huge. Um, the first was cashed in uh, by a man on the 19th of February, 1924, uh, it was signed by a man named A. Lowe of uh, Fairley in Sheffield. Now, uh, Pat had connections, even though he's not using the name uh, of his usual names here, uh, he had connections to Sheffield. The second £100 note was cashed on the 24th of March, 1924. Interestingly, that's just around the time that he was buying the engagement ring uh, by a man signed as J. Edge of St. Elms in Staines. He also had connections to Staines. And third, the third £100 um, uh, was on the... Uh, 17th of April 1924 signed by J.B. Peters of 27 Hagley Road in Birmingham Birmingham my old neck of the woods now Hagley Road I took this out of the story I might have taken it I might have left it in I can't remember Hagley Road was when he was first arrested uh, for forging checks and then he ran away he, he fled for about a month leaving uh, Jesse and his newborn baby to, to kind of fend for themselves uh, he disappeared for a month and he was arrested in Hagley Road in Birmingham. So it's another one of these places that Pat seemed to know quite well. Uh, and when they got back the uh, counter signatures on, because um, obviously when, when the £100 note with notes were cashed in the bank, obviously the bank has to get a signature. Uh, and the, the handwriting on it, all of the handwriting Pat matched Patrick Mahon's. Ooh. Um, um, he said he did this, uh, this was after he was arrested, because he said he did this uh, as uh, they were uh, speculating in French francs. Now, as we know, that they, they said that they were going to go to France afterwards. They're going to go to Paris before they went off to uh, South Africa, which obviously never happened. Uh, when in, in all of Emily's belongings, they didn't find any money. But when they, um, uh, on Pat, 
when they searched his possessions, he had about 1,800 uh, French francs on him. So he had cashed those, but the police believe that this is uh, part of a, a fabrication. So he'd actually cashed some French francs so he could show to Emily and go, look, we've got French francs, we are going to go to Paris. But he hadn't got his passport. Um, it, it's also, I couldn't actually prove it on here, but... Uh, he was still under license, having been released from prison, because obviously it was quite a serious offence. You know, it was it was burglary, and it was a, a, a grievous bodily harm. It, I put assault on there, but it was actually grievous bodily harm. Uh, so, the, uh, um, he hadn't got a passport, and the likelihood is he couldn't get a passport, and he couldn't leave the country. Um, it, this this was said in one of the statements, but I just couldn't I couldn't prove it, so I actually didn't put it in the story. Um, uh, end of March, obviously we know. Um, uh, slightly confusing issues on here. It says at the end of March uh, that Emily uh, got ill with influenza. It wasn't influenza, it was kind of a flu. Uh, she went to Bournemouth to recuperate first. Uh, then Pat travelled down to see her at the end of her stay and they shared a double room at the South Western Hotel in Southampton. So they moved to Southampton and then she moved to East Eastbourne. Um, but obviously we know around that point that she just, she was ill with the flu, but actually she was pregnant. Uh, she went to the sea to rejuvenate, uh, from the 25th of March, 1924 to the 1st of April, 1924. They stayed at the Regina Court Hotel in Eastcliff, Bournemouth, except on the 27th when she met Pat in Southampton and they stayed at the Southwestern Hotel. Uh, 27th of of March he purchased her a sapphire ring at W. Cranbrook uh, on the high street in Southampton which was a jeweller's it was a sapphire ring uh, with a small gold shank a set sapphire in the centre which was surrounded by diamonds very nice Um, oddly at the end of this um, whether he was being just a bit messy with the the dismemberment and things like that, but he, even though he still got the receipt for the ring, uh, the ring was found amongst the ash in the house. So he'd actually burnt the body, or, or as, as we were saying, he was boiling down the hands and the uh, to get rid of them, and then then trying to burn the rest of it on the fire, burn the the bones. But the fire, the the ring was found in there, so he didn't actually take the ring back. Maybe he just didn't think about it, or. Do you know, maybe the place was just a mess. He, he, he couldn't see it. If Maybe that's it. Maybe if the hands were absolutely caked in blood. Um, maybe he just didn't see the ring anymore. Or maybe it just slipped off. Who knows? Who knows? Um, so, unfortunately, the location of the murder, the officers' quarters uh, in Pevensey Bay, also known as the Langley Bungalows, uh, is between... Uh, Eastbourne and Bex Hill. It was a row of whitewashed cottages formerly occupied by Coast Guards. Um, unfortunately, it's not there anymore. Uh, it was owned by uh, Mrs. K.S. Hutchinson of 67 Prince's Gate, SW7, which is, uh, I think that's Fulham, I believe, SW7. Uh, it had four bedrooms, two sitting rooms, a kitchen, a scullery, a small box room. Um, so it's quite quite a lot of uh, space in there for just the two of them, but I guess that's what what they wanted. Um, the building, unfortunately, doesn't exist anymore. 
Um, it became a bit of a celebrity place, not a celebrity place. Well, I guess it was, I guess, uh, afterwards, after the murders, uh, loads of people would turn up, uh, to take pictures, obviously, cause it's a murder location and blah, 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 blah. uh, and then, uh, one unscrupulous person, I don't know whether it was the owners of the place or, or whoever was renting it out, but they would charge people like, like a shilling to come in and have a look around. Obviously the police had gone by that point. So it wasn't a murder location anymore, but it was still Joe quite a, quite a grisly place to have a look around uh pat didn't know about this location prior to this uh he saw an advert which says i've got two versions of this uh one version says it was an advert in the daily telegraph the other one said it was in dalton's weekly which are two very different papers but it could have been both uh that was on the 4th of april he saw the advert he called george muir who was a friend of the owners obviously the owners lived in london um he gave his name as Mr. Waller, Pat Waller, and on Saturday the 5th of April at 7, 8, 7 p.m. he arrived, lied about lied about his job, told them he wanted to rent the place for his wife who wrote a great deal and needed somewhere quiet. Ooh. Uh, maybe she's like Angela Lansbury, do you know? Do you know? Uh, she's always surrounded by murder. Why didn't they arrest her? She should have been arrested years ago. Uh, uh, he wanted to ensure that it was a place of peace and quiet, uh, so that when he went to court, there was a lot of speculation around this that he deliberately ch- uh, made, said all these things to, to make sure that the place was quiet and private and that they wouldn't be disturbed because he needed privacy to you know obviously kill her and chop up her body. Uh, there was a written contract that was signed. This was the the contract where it, was, it says contract. It was really just a letter, a letter of um, uh, uh, agreement. Which Jesse found in Pat's wallet, along with the uh, the left luggage ticket. It was signed J Waller, which is obviously Pat Mahon's uh, other alias. Dated the tenth of April, nineteen twenty-four. Uh, on Friday the eleventh, uh, Pat arrived. George showed him around the bungalow and explained how everything worked. Um, it was also around this time that the uh, they had a housekeeper there. He said he didn't need the housekeeper there. That's fine. She, she turned up, cleaned up the place, ready for them to turn up. But he said, I don't need you there. We can do it all ourselves. Uh, she showed him around and then pointed out some things that he needed to know. Um, things that do work, things that don't work. Because obviously it's a working house. And she pointed out that, you know, there were knives and some of the meat choppers in the drawer. Uh, they were a bit blunt. So it wouldn't be, wouldn't be of much use. Uh, what else have we got? What else have we got? Um, obviously we got Pat's statements, which are quite bullshitty. I don't remember. I don't remember whether I uh, read these out last time. Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. Uh, one of his statements, the state, first statement that he said on the second of May, nineteen twenty-four. Um, uh, during the night, the sixteenth, we he says the sixteenth, but it wasn't the sixteenth. It was the fifteenth. Uh, we quarrelled. We quarrelled over certain things, and then, see how vague he is. And in the violent temper, uh, he says violent temper, but obviously we know she's not a violent person. She, she threw an axe at me. It was a coal axe. It hit me a glancing blow. I then saw red. We fought and struggled. She was a very big, strong girl. She appeared to be quite mad with rage and anger. Uh, during our struggle, we overturned a chair, and her head fell on the iron coal scuttle, and it appeared. Not more or less to stun her. Uh, This happened at about midnight. Uh, I attempted to revive her but found that she was dead. I put her body in the spare room and covered it up with a fur coat. I came up to London on the morning of the 17th of April. We know that's wrong. This was the 12th. 
Uh, he's not getting his dates wrong. He was just completely lying about it. And returned uh, to Langley that night. Langley is the Langley bungalows in Pevensey Bay. Um, taking with me a knife which I had brought at a shop in Victoria Street. I also brought uh, in the shop a small saw. When I got back to Langley, I was still so upset and worried that I could not carry out my intention to decapitate the body. I did so on Good, on good Friday. Uh, so obviously this is the uh, Easter weekend that uh, Ethel Duncan is coming down. I severed the legs from the hips, the head and left the arms on. I then put the various parts in the trunk which I locked up. I left the trunk in the bedroom and locked the door. Um, I didn't put this in the story as well. There's a whole big section about Emily Duncan coming in. Obviously she was there for three days. Uh, she didn't smell anything she says because she she had a cold uh, she didn't she said she saw some women's things around there like women's clothes and you know some of emily's stuff in drawers and things like that but she kind of just brushed it off you know um he'd already said that he was uh a married man that he was going through a divorce so she just kind of put it aside as that um the body the bits of the body was put in the trunk marked ebk as many things were marked ebk and put in the what they called the box room um the lock on the door wasn't working um and it was i I think it was the sunday morning she said that she came she woke up she came in pat was in there and he was trying to fit a new lock onto the box room and when she looked in she could see the trunk she didn't see anything else but she said she could definitely see a trunk in there um Little did she know what was in the trunk. Uh, Pat had been down uh, since the day of the murder. Pat had been down to Pevensey Bay several times, uh, wondering how he could dispose of the body. Obviously, um, he underestimated just how difficult this was going to be. I think it's believed that he thought it would take like a, a day to chop up the body and do everything he needed to do. But obviously, it's hard to, you know, to sever off the head, sever off the arms, sever off the legs. And then even after he'd cut the legs into halves and the torso into quarters, still at that point, you've still got a lot of work to do. What are you going to do? They don't they don't fit into a pot. So um, and also they don't, you know, um, they don't burn well on fires, you know, bodies. Uh, well, not until they they they're kind of got quite old and have dried out a bit. You know, a lot of the blood is poured out. Uh, so, uh, so that proved pro- problematic to him. That's why he had to use quite a few pots. They were big pots. There were, uh, some of them were two gallon pots. Some of them were three gallon pots. So what's that? Um, I mean, they're big pots, aren't they? That's a, at least a good couple of liters, isn't it? So, uh, that's probably about between five to 10 liter pots. There's some, there's some big old cooking pots. Uh, so even with that, he was still struggling. He had uh, pots on the stove, he had pots on the fire as well, and he was burning things in the fire, and he was having the fires on constantly just to keep <coughs> to keep it burning. Uh, obviously, this is April, so people people you know could kind of expect fires to be on. It wouldn't be much of a problem. Uh, he burned her feet and legs in the grate. Well, he really he says he burnt uh, feet and legs. He actually burnt uh, one of the thigh bones. Uh, he cut up her trunk, her trunk as in her torso, he cut off the arms, burned portions of them. The smell was appalling. Obviously, the smell was appalling. Uh, in order to research this, I uh, I researched, I had to do lots of bizarre research for this, because obviously his descriptions were a little bit vague. So I had to do things like, uh, what is the colour of human fat? What is the different colours of human blood? Uh, because there is different 
colours or different shades of red, really. Uh, when does uh, blood congeal? Um, what uh, what is the melting point of fat? What do you know? I had, I had to try and work out because it's none of it's in this description. So I had to sit down and go right. If he was boiling the body, what would you see? And obviously, it took a little while to work out. But obviously, the kind of things like grit will float to the bottom. The the uh, pots would be kind of a very reddishy liquid. Even he describes it as a reddish liquid with a kind of a, a, a the fat on top. But then I had to go and work out that the fat was actually kind of a yellowy brown. Uh, and what parts of a body kind of don't re- kind of would clog up a sink and stuff like that. So there, there is references in Sir Bernard Spilsbury kind of descriptions that uh, of the different things he found as well, which was really useful. And the fact that you know there's fat splashed up the sides of the bath and you know over the sides of the pots. Uh, even even SB SB uh, Sir Bernard. Uh, described it as one of the most gruesome crime scenes I have ever been to. He was notoriously kind of uh, uh, press shy, so he never really said a lot. But even he was like, "Wow, this is uh, this is a, this is a real scene and a half." Because it wasn't just like you know someone got stabbed and then they fell on the floor. This was this was dismemberment and bodies being carried from uh, master bedroom, box room, sitting room, scullery. So there's a real uh, kitchen as well. So there's a real mix mishmash of kind of uh, uh, places where the bodies were taken and uh, things dripped everywhere. Disgusting, disgusting. Uh, so uh, obviously none of the portions of the uh, of the body were found that he'd wrapped up and he'd put in the uh, the Gladstone bag. That's what he was carting back and forth, forth from Eastbourne to Waterloo and Richmond. Richmond, obviously, because he, he lives near Kew. So Richmond is the nearest train station to there. Um, that's what he would do on these journeys back. He would toss them out the window. It's a long journey. Like, to go from um, Eastbourne in is about an hour and a half. Uh, and quite a lot of that is kind of... Uh, it's not through towns. It's, like, kind of through wilderness. So uh, easy to get rid of stuff, especially if you're, you're on a train carriage. Uh, in those days, you would have had you know those carriages where it wasn't open plan it, a lot of it was kind of well especially if he's using emily's money he could probably book a first class ticket get a carriage to himself he's got privacy to do whatever he needs to and just toss him out the window who's going to notice uh so he did that so uh he was traveling back and forth with the gladstone bag each time carrying bits of uh flesh wrapped in the silk tossing them out the window uh and that's why he was returning back that time that's why he put the bag in the left luggage he'd already tossed out the um the 20 pieces of flesh and then he was going to go and return and do it do it all again oops sorry burpees um but quite why he was carrying the knife with him i don't know that's something i can't work out is he had he had the bloomers there and he had the the silk night dress which makes sense you know because he was using it to wrap up the uh the blood uh the, the the pieces of flesh why carry the knife with him? Why carry that in the bag? Why not just leave it at the house with everything else? He left the saw there. Doesn't make sense. Uh, anyway, so um, one in- important thing that came out of this case as well was uh, Sabrina Spilsb- Sabrina Spilsbury, the Home Office pathologist, was called in to uh, do the autopsy and to investigate the scene. Um, 
it was a really uh, it was really stormy when they got there. Do you know, I've, uh, the weather report is accurate when I've put it on there. It's not for effect. It is. It was a really stormy day and it's horrific and they were really struggling. But when he turned up, he said uh, all the police were there uh, and they were trawling through like uh, human remains and ash with their bare hands. And it was just like it, it was like this is no way to work. Do you know? No one, no one should have to work their way, and it's not a good way to actually um, record a scene, especially with human remains there and things like that. And he always carried with him like a, a little bag, and in his bag contained everything he needed for kind of for an investigation to kind of uh, 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 collect evidence effectively. So it was actually this murder case that actually. Uh, this is actually start of a, kind of a real important turning point in modern policing. So Sir Bernard Spilsby from this point was like, right, I'm going to develop the murder bag. And uh, I'll try and post a picture of it online. But basically it is, it's like a little suitcase. And it's something that uh, detectives can carry around with them. So when they go up to a scene, basically um, they can cordon it off. You get the policeman, you cordon it off. In there is uh, uh, things like bags. Uh, jars, gloves, labels, elastic bands, notepads, uh, test tubes. Do you know everything you kind of need in in a kind of uh, a way to effectively collect evidence and also to label it and make sure it's all accurate and say this is where this was found and things like that. And it, do you know it, it all seems very simple today. I'm sure we all we all go well that seems really simple. But prior to this point, people weren't doing it. They were kind of just stumbling into a murder scene and kind of bumbling their way through it. And uh, do you know. A lot of evidence was probably lost that way. But from this point onwards, from the development of the murder bag, this is where it all started. Uh, so that came in very useful. Uh, do I have anything else to say? I don't. Well, 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 there we go. I think that that's, that's, that's summed up nicely. Uh, good, I've done that. Good, that's me done. So I'm going to toodle away now. I'm going to... Uh, I think I might go into town. I'm going to go into town. I've got to collect some things. I'm about 30 miles away from... No, about 15 miles away from town now. So I'm going to go in. My post box is there, which annoyingly annoyingly isn't open on Sundays. Really annoying. I can go there Monday to Saturday, but when I'm out of town, I only go into town Sundays because that's when I do my tours. But it's not open on Sundays. It's really annoying. So, uh, yeah. <sighs> so I have to... So when I'm way out of town... And I have to go into town to get something. It's really annoying. Anyway, so I'm going to do that now because I've got some things to collect. And I will edit some of this in town and have a, finish my green tea. But no cake. I've been really good. So have yourselves a good week. And I will see you all soon. Signing off. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.